Hello, hello, beautiful soul. Welcome to my mommy's podcast. Hello, hello, beautiful souls, and welcome back to another episode of Wabi Sabi Wellness. My name is Jeanette, and I'm so excited for you to join me here today. Today's episode, we have a special guest. We are talking to Noelle Allen, who is the owner of Slow Fire, a ceramics studio and workshop in Oak Park, Illinois, and I'm so excited for you all to hear her story and her journey to where she is today. Before we get started, though, let's talk about the moon transits of the week and the tarot card that we have pulled for this week. Starting on Sunday, September 24th at 6.30 p.m. Central, the moon will shift into Aquarius and remain there until 7.18 p.m. Central on Tuesday, September 26th. While the moon is here, you might want to indulge in some time on your own, and you should feel no guilt about that. This is a great time to take yourself on a solo date, go see a movie, watch a concert, or really just browse the shops on your own. This may also be a time when you are trying new things or putting your effort and energy into causes that mean a lot to you. This could be a really great time to volunteer your time. This may not be the best time to commit to social activities, especially those that have a hard start time though. On Tuesday, September 26th at 7.18 p.m. Central, the moon will then shift into Pisces and remain there until 5.17 p.m. Central on Thursday, September 28th. While the moon is here, we are feeling ultra-reflective as we come up to the full moon later this week. You might be feeling especially aware of your emotions and the emotions of those around you. This is a great time to spend a night relaxing, taking a bath, meditating, and journaling. It can also be a really great time to pull tarot cards for yourself or get your cards read by somebody else. Expect some clarity during this moon transit, and you might also really want to be in water around this time. It can be very healing. Then on Thursday, September 28th at 5.17 p.m. Central, the moon will shift into Aries and remain there until 8.18 p.m. Central on Saturday, September 30th. On the second day of this transit, we do have that full moon in Aries on Friday at 4.57 a.m. Central. While the moon is in Aries, we feel a lot of energy to get things started. Has there been a project that you keep putting off? This can be the ideal time to just do the damn thing. The full moon will have us releasing what is getting in our way of action, especially in the house ruled by Aries. Lastly, on Saturday, September 30th at 8.18 p.m. Central, the moon will shift to Taurus and remain there until 12.03 a.m. on Tuesday, October 3rd. We are going to be utilizing the cleansing energy of Friday's full moon to allow ourselves to work hard and play hard during this transit. This can be a great time to evaluate your day-to-day routine and see where you can add a bit of luxury into it. Do you need new bed sheets? Do you want to go buy a fancy new coffee for this week? Go for it. This is the ideal time to indulge in the finer things in life. For the tarot card this week, I have pulled death, and this is the card that when I am reading for others, they are always terrified of getting, but death is actually a fantastic card. Death is about a change that needs to happen in your life, and it can feel bittersweet in the moment because change is hard, but ultimately it's a change that's for your greater good. So as we go into this full moon, I want you to think about the changes that you need to be making in your life and what you truly need to release so that you can welcome new energy back in. Okay, enough of all that. Let's get into the interview. I am so excited to introduce you all to Noelle Allen. Hi, Noelle. My name's Jeanette. I'm so excited to get you on this podcast to hear your story. So I'm going to start off with the most basic one. Who are you and what do you do? Um, Hi, my name's Noelle. I am an artist and professor and a small business owner in Oak Park, Illinois. So I've stalked a lot of your work online and it's gorgeous. Can you talk about how you knew that this was the journey for you? I didn't know. Um, When I went to college, I was very unclear as to what I was going to study. 
But at a certain point, um, my sophomore year, I decided I wanted to take some summer classes in art just to dip my toe in the water and see if it was something I was interested in pursuing. Um, I went to college on the East Coast, and so I ended up taking some summer classes um, at the Rhode Island School of Design. And from that point on, I switched to art, a studio art major from sociology. Um, so it just was kind of, uh, you know, the switch flipped at a certain point and it made sense. I love it. <laughs> Sometimes it's all about just like this gut feeling of knowing that like this feels right. Um, and I love that yes. for you. And I think that, you know, my mom's an artist. And so I had a role model at home and that really helped me understand what the journey could look like. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, speaking of that, I think when people do work that is aligned with themselves and go outside of like, like schools and parents and like the media is telling them is their ideal job, there can be some pushback. So you kind of spoke about this with your mom, but did you ever feel pushback for going after what you truly care about or not going a more, I don't know, traditional route? I would say that my family was supportive and I didn't receive any pushback from my family. If anything, the pushback was an internal struggle, knowing that this particular path did not have any concrete or specific outcomes. Um, you know, it's not like choosing to go to law school and then at the end you're a lawyer. Mm -hmm. When you decide to go into art, you have to be okay with calling yourself an artist. And that takes time. And and self-confidence. Absolutely. Did you ever feel like imposter syndrome for calling yourself an artist or did you own that label immediately? Oh, for sure. I still do at 43 years old. Yes, absolutely. That's so funny. And I think also reassuring for a lot of people because you are a professor of art, like you have a studio and there's still that feeling of like, am I there yet? Right? Oh yes, for sure. And, and it doesn't just, um, for me, it's not just a, even about being an artist, but even as an educator, I still have anxiety when I have a new class or if there's a demonstration I'm going to do that perhaps I've never done before in front of an audience. So I, I think that it's okay to have a certain amount of anxiety or a certain amount of, is this really who I am? And is it okay to call myself an artist? But at a certain point, if you don't embrace it, then other people won't either. I love that. I also have this thought on anxiety and like feeling nervous about an event, meaning that if you're feeling anxious, that means you still care. And I think that's really important. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. I think if I didn't care, I wouldn't, you know, I, I think that that's very accurate. You know, that the anxiety, the worry, am I good enough? Is this, am I doing well enough? Will people respond to what I'm doing. For sure, it shows a, a, a large amount of investment on, on that person's part and their desire to do a good job. Has ceramics and sculpture always been your preferred medium? Um, like what has your journey been like as an artist? So where were you when you first started to where are you now, I guess? That's a really big question. When I decided to be a studio art major at Smith, my degrees from Smith College, um, in Northampton, Massachusetts, when I decided to be an art major, I 
knew I wanted to do sculpture pretty immediately. And my senior thesis in college was a large installation. Um, I don't particularly love, and I'm not as skilled at two-dimensional art. And so I also wanted to create more, I wanted to create environments at that time. And so that felt, I was very clear that that's what I wanted to do. Um, my mom's a painter and has an MFA in painting. And I think subconsciously also, I was trying to separate myself a little bit from her path as an artist. Um, and then when I was an undergrad, I applied to graduate school and was accepted to the sculpture program at the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, which is how I ended up in Chicago. And that's a two-year program. And I was fairly committed to sculpture during that time, although I did serve as a TA in the photography department. And my first teaching job post-MFA was as a photography instructor at Northeastern Illinois. And one of the things I really liked about the Art Institute when I was touring grad schools, and this would have been in 2001, 2002, um, was that the Art Institute was, it, it was, is, interdisciplinary in its approach. Um, so I, I chose that program knowing that I could explore other avenues. So I took some classes in the fibers department, in photo and um, and in sculpture. And so that allowed me to like bring in other mediums to my work. I didn't study ceramics at the Art Institute. Ceramics and sculpture, although you would think that they would be hand in hand are often not. And that's the case at, at the Art Institute is that there, there's not a lot of crossover in those programs. So it wasn't, um, it wasn't something I studied as formally as sculpture. And at a certain point in my 30s, my mid 30s, I had two young children and I decided to take a step back from showing my art. And I spent a little bit more time on the wheel and realized that I found that the wheel, I don't know, at the risk of sounding corny, is a little bit more therapeutic than other avenues. And also just, it, it just didn't have as much pressure for me in terms of outcome at the time, because I was pretty overwhelmed with life. And so I could spend some time making something on the wheel that perhaps was functional, but it didn't have to have like this fine art gallery outcome in my mind. It was okay if I just made a bowl that day. I love it. Yeah. So, it, so my my approach has changed over the years as my life and circumstances have changed. I love it. It's it's ever flowing and ebbing and flowing, and and that's the beautiful thing about life and art. Um, it just flows where you need it to. It does, and I think being able to pivot in your artistic path is really important. I do see people getting stuck, making the same thing year after year. Maybe they feel like that's what the market expects from them. Maybe it's their comfort zone. Maybe that's where the money is. Um, but I didn't, I've never wanted to be bored in the studio. And so even now I'm not really, I'm pretty focused on my business and being a mom and a teacher. I haven't shown in a gallery in, I want to say six years. Um, and there's also the pandemic factored into that. And um, 
so being able to pivot, I think as circumstances change and maybe as, I mean, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Where's your studio? How much money do you have to invest in your studio? Do you have a gallery who's supporting your work? You know, are you using your art as a means of income or not? So I've had the luxury of not having to make my art sales my main source of income. And I pretty deliberately chose that path that I wouldn't rely on my art sales to to make a living, that I was going to be a professor. And and so that took that that allowed me the freedom to continue to try new things. So that's that that's been very helpful to me. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So on top of Slow Fire, you're also a professor of sculpture and ceramics at Dominican. A question that has been on my mind, and like it might sound really dumb, but with art being a form of like self-expression and creativity, do you ever struggle with how you would grade a student and their art? So like when I was a teacher, it was really easy for me to mark like a math question as like, that's wrong, right? But when I was teaching like a writing class, it was so much harder for me to do that because I'm like, this is your form of expression. How can I, as an outsider say, this is wrong or this is not as good. So I guess my question is how, do you ever struggle with that, with what you teach? Not so much anymore. And a lot of it just comes down to having really clear parameters and expectations in your syllabus. And Mm -hmm. that those are communicated very clearly to the student. So, for example, um, the students are in the middle of starting their coil building project. I'm very clear about the size that the piece needs to be. I'm very clear about the technique. They have to build it according to a certain set of specifications. And you know, it has to be, it has to follow all the rules of ceramics, so to speak. You know, it has to be a certain thickness. Um, it has to be built so that when it goes into the kiln, it doesn't fall apart. So all of those technical considerations, you know, form kind of the backbone of grading for me. Mm-hmm. And then, so I tell a student, like, if you do everything that the syllabus asks you to do, um, you attend class, you listen, you contribute, you fulfill the technical aspects of the assignment correctly. You turn everything in on time. Um, You know, that's a solid B. But if you're able to add creative thought and concept to your work, that's what can push your work up to an A. And so that's what would separate, in my mind, a B student from an A student. So I don't I'm not critiquing or grading what their original thought is, Mm -hmm. but if they're able to communicate something through their work and have ideas about their work that they've made an effort to to portray visually, you know, then I'm very open-minded about saying, okay, well, that can be an A. Mm -hmm. I'm not, I'm not a super strict grader. Most of my students are not art majors. They're in my classroom taking their art fine art requirement. And so many of them are coming from a place of like, this is not my field. I will not continue after this class. And so that actually makes my life a little easier than if they were all, if it was like, they're all coming from a point of like, this is new information. So 
when I do have an art major in the classroom, which does happen, or like graphic design major, most of them don't necessarily have any background in ceramics either. So they might be starting from the same, like the same point, the same starting point when it comes to the technical aspects, but because they're in the art department, they might already be working on a portfolio of ideas. So for those students, yes, they're, they might find the class a little easier. Um, and if they're particularly someone like, if they're a painting major, for example, they're used to working with their hands a lot. So mm -hmm. they might have an easier time of it, especially when it comes to the surface design element of, of the work. And so I, I just take into consideration, you know, I look at a holistic view of who the student is. Is the student a nursing major and this is their fine art requirement or is the student a painting major and this is part of their, their major course of study. And so, you know, I, I account for that in my grading a bit. And that, that helps if I have a, a good understanding of who the student is, but if you have like clear parameters that are that are that the student is aware of going into it, it can offset a lot of that concern about well, this is just your opinion. Mm -hmm. And so I make it very clear I'm not I'm not grading their creative thought or their concept. It gets a little tricky when the student is reinterpreting something from pop culture, for example. So like if I have a student who is obsessed with the nightmare before Christmas and all of the work that that student produces that semester revolves around that theme and they're just taking imagery and ideas from that movie and putting it in their work, that to me is not original thought, mm -hmm. but the student might struggle to understand that. So if they're straight up just copying imagery or themes, you know, that's that's not really what I'm looking for. But if they're taking The Nightmare Before Christmas, for example, and they're reinterpreting it or putting their own spin on it, or they're trying to communicate something with that style that's their own, you know, that's, that's a different conversation. So it's really a case-by-case -case basis. I hear you. Has that something, has that been something that has kind of emerged over your years of teaching? Do you think that when you first started teaching, you were a lot more um, open to just grading based on like, this was what your heart wanted you to do. And I'm going to give you a good mark because you did that. Or do you think this has just always been your philosophy on grading art? I, I mean, I've always had a rubric and pretty clear set of expectations in the syllabus to protect myself, but mm -hmm. also because that's what the university wants. I mean, they want that to be clearly communicated. So, you know, I followed the mandates of the university. I, it also helps me eliminate that subjectivity piece as much as possible. Mm -hmm. It's so if anything, I've gotten looser over the years rather than stricter in my grading. And it's probably a combination of things. I mean, the student body has changed a lot since I first started teaching. And there's different kinds of demands placed on our students now. Our students are coming in with more disabilities and higher levels of need than they used to. Um, also, the pandemic influenced, you know, th that changed things for a lot of our students. 
And so mm-hmm. I've had to keep that in the back of my mind as well. But I'm at Dominican University, which is a Latinx um, institution. And so it, it's technically called a Hispanic serving institution. And so a lot of our students are lower income or first in the family to attend college. We have scholarships and support for undocumented students. And I'm not exactly sure what year we became a Hispanic serving institution. I Maybe it was 2011. I started teaching at Dominican in 2005. And so I'm kind of forgetting my point, but with that shift in in sort of who our student body is, there's also been a shift in how do I grade or account for the student who perhaps is also working a full-time job, Mm -hmm. you know, or they're helping their family make ends meet. And so over time, understanding like who our student is, that changes my grading a little bit. And I think I've become a little softer around the edges in the classroom. You know, the other factor that has changed for me is being a mom. And the closer my kids get to the age of my college students, the more I see how young they actually are. And I am older now or about the same age as some of my students' parents. And that's shifted the dynamic as well for me a little bit. Um, in, in terms of respect, the older you get, the, you know, when I was younger, sometimes they would see me as a friend. And so I had to be a little bit more strict and reserved in the classroom. The older I've gotten, it's been a little easier because, you know, they understand that I've been there for a while and I'm chair of the department. And so there's a little bit more built-in respect, but I have a 12 and a 14 year old at home. And that's not that you know, my 14-year-old is not that far removed from that 18-year-old in my classroom, you know? And so that's also like changed my perspective a bit. That makes a lot of sense. And I hear you completely. I um I entered the classroom when I was 21 and there was absolutely no respect there. I was a few years older than some of the kids. Um, so I, I absolutely hear you on that. I also did not know that about Dominican. I actually have my master's in teaching from there because Teach for America had partnered with them when I was doing my teaching. And I had no clue that that was um, like the community that Dominican served. Yes. And I would say that I am the minority now on, you know, in my classroom. Mm -hmm. I I don't know the actual statistics, but I want to say like 70 some percent of our student body is is Latinx. And and so that shift came under our previous president, Donna Carroll. And that's something that she did really well at the school prior to that designation, our student body was a lot less diverse and it was um, a lot more, we had a lot more like suburban students coming from like the Western suburbs. And in general, it was just, you know, a a different, it was a different feel on campus. Absolutely. Um, What is a common misconception that people have about what you do or the work that you do? That it's easy. (laughs) (laughs) you know and they tell me they're really direct to my face oh I'm here because ceramics seems easy and fun okay um they quickly learn that it's not easy that you know those fun TikTok videos they've seen of someone throwing on the wheel takes years of practice to get to that point 
that it looks effortless. Uh, even something as simple as making a little pinch pot, it's not that easy. Um, and that's that's still hard for me. And it, it's something I encounter a lot in my business as well that I struggle with. This idea that um, Susie down the street could take my wheel throwing class, my beginning adult wheel throwing class, and you know by the second day make a mug, or you know make make something for their living room. Um, I I have to spend a lot of time managing people's expectations around how long it takes to actually make something that matches what's in your mind's eye. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah. How do you balance it all? So you have Slow Fire, your professor, your mom, your wife, and your Noel, like as a human being, how do you do it? Or like, what tips would you have for other moms who are also trying to do it all? I don't know. I work all the time. I, I don't have a great work-life balance. It's something I need to work better at. I think I deal with my existential dread <laughs> by working. Um, I It's for me, working and keeping myself busy is a coping mechanism. Um, I also... I also have ADHD and so I have a hard time sitting still and not doing things. I would like to be busy. I like to work with my hands. Um, I did not expect slow fire to be as big as it's gotten or to require as much work as it's needed. I was not a small business owner before slow fire. So I didn't really know the amount of work that goes into owning a small business, but I also grew it organically. Like I didn't just open the doors and say, I'm in business. Mm -hmm. Like I grew it from one private lesson at a time to like small group lessons to, okay, I need another teacher because I'm teaching literally all day long till 930 at night. Okay. Now that second teacher is full. Okay. Now I need a third teacher. Okay. She's busy too. We need a new space, you know, like it, it just kind of grew organically Mm -hmm. And as it's grown, it's been hard to slow it down. And so I've, I've found myself admittedly a little too busy. Um, so some of the things I do to take care of myself, well, I have a therapist um, that helps. I try to I, I've tried to make some decisions this semester. This is my first like full year as chair of the department and you know, the university increased our workload mm -hmm. um, without raising our wages really adequately in my mind. Um, so I'm not actually teaching at Slow Fire this fall per se. I am running Slow Fire, but this is the first time in three plus years that I'm not actually like teaching a slow fire class. Um, that's not to say I won't drop in and support or be back up, but I did take that off my plate this semester, just knowing how busy I am with Dominican and also um, building out our new studio space. One of the things I do, and I, I, one of the decisions I did also make was uh, my 12 year old son um, plays year round soccer. And he plays on a travel team. And 
it's pretty intense. And he is on a team based in Oak Brook. And I take him to practice two, sometimes depends on my husband's schedule, sometimes three days a week. And it's like two hours in the evening where it's a little too far to come home. So I bring my computer or I bring a book um, and I just chill and I watch his soccer. And, you know, for me, that time where I'm just like, I, I can't really do much, but be there. That time is nice for me. And I, it also enables me to spend time with my son. Um, my, my other child, Henry, my 14 year old is really passionate about airplanes and he is an avid plane watcher. Uh, plane, he's so he's part of the plane, plane spotting community and we, he, he likes to go to O'Hare and watch planes. And so I would say like every two to three weeks, I take him to O'Hare for like a long afternoon or an evening. And there's a few spots that um, are fairly well known in the plane spotting community. And so we just bring like folding chairs and we watch planes. And I find that really relaxing and enjoyable. <laughs> so I've tried to like do some things with my children that are just for them, but where I can spend one-on-one -on -one time with them. And they're doing something they love, but it's also like kind of a mental break for me in a way. I love that. And I also love how refreshing it is to hear someone say, it's not easy to balance at all. And I, and I am overworked because I feel like social media often it's like, well, like it's all easy. If you love what you do, it's easy. Um, so thank you for being honest about your response there. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing I've had to learn is that I'm pretty much on call all the time with my business mm -hmm. and people expect really fast answers. And if they reach me on a Saturday afternoon, they want to hear back like that day or the next day. Um, and if I'm not responsive, like people are like, why aren't you responding to me? Like, I'm talking like not responsive within like 12 hours responsive. Um, and so that's something I, I have to work on a little bit is figuring out those boundaries better. Absolutely. And we live in a world where it's so easy to be like, okay, I'm just going to reply really quickly to this email on my phone, but yeah. it's taking away from in this moment. What am I doing Saturday afternoon with my family? Um, that's right. So I, I hear you on the boundaries. <laughs> it's tough. It's tough. I, I could be better at it for sure. Um, I want to talk more about Slow Fire. So first off, I love the name. Like it's such a, it's a name that just like flows. Where did it come from? And was it like the first name that you had picked? Um, yes. And in fact, I didn't intend to have a business named Slow Fire that was art education. I named my line of ceramics Slow Fire initially years ago. Um, and the idea being that making art ceramics is a slow process. It's a methodical process. And that, and then of course, fire refers to the heat, mm -hmm. the kilns. Um, but also I think fire can refer to passion. So for me, that, that's like where it started from. And then when I started teaching private lessons, it just made sense to like start posting that work under my slow fire ceramics account and it just kind of became slow fire and at that point it was just like that was it and it made sense and it was unique in a way that you know a lot of clay studios have names related to earth or 
like clay itself or, you know, like it was a little different and unique and I liked that about it. So I just rolled with it. I love that. I love that it wasn't a name that came out of like a marketing firm and they gave you 20 options and it was just very organic to you. And I like that. It was. And, and in fact, um, I think originally I had named like some large resin sculptures, low fire. And I don't remember why. So it, it kind of evolved from like a sculptural installation I had done also. Um, now I actually, I've, I've actually trademarked, ah, I've trademarked the name, you know, because I felt like it was important. It would be easy for someone else to pick up that name. And mm -hmm. so, yeah. I love it. So now I'm trademarked. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of spoke to it in this question, but where did the seed for the idea of slow fire as like a community and a class come from? And when did you decide to take it from just this like idea in your head to like, this is actually happening and we're going forward and we're making a space for it. It was a very slow, gradual process. I didn't intend to do this. <laughs> I know that sounds, I, I know how it sounds, but the reality is I didn't foresee this mm -hmm. in any capacity. And in fact, I have a friend, Nika Vaughn, and years ago, she said, oh man, it'd be so cool in the wall if you had an art studio in town. And I was like, no, absolutely not. I'm definitely not doing that. <laughs> and um, her kids ended up being one of our, my first clients actually, but um, it was the pandemic and I decided just to offer like a few small private lessons in my home art studio, which was quite big actually. And I specifically put out the call that I would be supportive or accept neurodivergent students. Mm -hmm. And, you know, at, at the time, like I was noticing not so much with my own kids who actually managed okay during the pandemic, but, um, you know, there were a lot of kids who were very isolated and were, you know, needing something outside of their own home. And so, having a one-on-one -on -one class was a safe option initially. And it also like took the pressure off of me. I, I wanted to keep, I, I, kn I knew I liked teaching, but I was also feeling a little burned out by the college classroom. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to teach someone who wasn't there for a requirement, w really wanted to learn because they wanted to learn. And it's reinvigorated my teaching for sure. But I was, I was feeling like my teaching was stale and um, I'm also a parent of a child on the autism spectrum and it was very hard for us to find places that he could go where I wouldn't, wouldn't worry about getting a phone call, you know, either he was hiding under the table or, you know, had left the room or things weren't going well. And so my initial like, call out to folks was like, Hey, you know, I, I will take your child, um, or an adult and with the one-on-one -on -one support I can give and my years of experience and also being a parent of a neurodivergent child, I think I could be a good fit for you. And that ended up being a really, really, it, it really resounded with people in the community 
And so out the gate, I, I think I had 10 private students when I decided to open the doors and I didn't, you know, nothing was formalized. It was pretty chill. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't have the LLC formed. I didn't have like QuickBooks set up, you know, it was just kind of like casual, like, you know, sell me or pay me in cash or what have you. And, you know, not all my original students were neurodivergent. Um, I had all kinds of students, but my, my ideas were that I would create a small, safe community space. And then as it's grown, I've kept to that mission as much as possible. And I think that if you're true to your mission and you know why you're doing something and you don't try to be the space for everybody because you can't, Mm -hmm. if you're clear on what it is you're doing and why, people will see that. So to this day, our mission has been that we accept and support neurodivergent folks as much as possible. And, And for sure, there's folks we haven't been able to support. Um, but we we try as best we can. And if if someone needs an aid, we'll provide that at no charge. Um, we keep our class sizes as small as possible um, to support our students. Um, I'm sorry. And You know, we we focus heavily on creating like a small community space. So all of my decisions have come from that point. Awesome. I love it. I feel like the best ideas come from just like a seed. And I feel like Slow Fire was something that you never, like you didn't sit down intentionally and were like, I'm going to have a ceramic studio. It just became. And I think that's probably part of the success of Slow Fire, that it just was like your name, very organic and very true to you. I think so. And I think also building it slowly, I didn't invest all this money up front. You know, like I hadn't spent all this money on something that I was then opening the doors and hoping people would come. I allowed people to come. And then as the need grew, I was able to say, okay, now we need a small storefront. Okay, now our small storefront is feeling really tight. What are we gonna do next? Um, and that's that's enabled me to stay for the most part financially healthy, which is critical to a small business. Oh, absolutely. So speaking of that, you have two locations. You have Slow Fire Studio and then Slow Fire Grove. Can you speak to the difference between the two and what each offers? So um, Slow Fire Studios, which is in the Arts District next door to Buzz Cafe, is a space that offers ceramics, painting and drawing, and it's also an event party space. We also offer camps, and after school clubs there. So for example, this upcoming Monday um, in the Oak Park District 97 and District 90, which is River Forest, the kids have a day off. So we have like a day off class. So kids are coming, I I believe from like eight to three. Um, That space is really cheerful and it's really cute. And we primarily keep that space for adults and 
um, children under the age of 11. Mm -hmm. Not to say we don't have teens there, but we, we keep the under 11 crowd mostly at that space. Um, and that was our first location outside of my home studio. And it's not huge. It's about 750 square feet, but it, it, it's pretty well, you know, it's pretty well stocked for, for a ceramics space and a painting and drawing space. Um, when it was clear that that space was getting too small and we were outgrowing my home studio, which was starting to feel a little intrusive on my home life and my kids' mm -hmm. home life, my husband, I knew I needed another space. And um, Slow Fire Grove is, is a home dedicated to Slow Fire. I, I mean, it offers ceramics. It does not have painting and drawing at the moment, although we have an event space ish on the first floor where we can have like painting. Um, it has a really lovely redone kitchen in the backyard. I am redoing the garage for a studio. That part is not complete. Um, but I was able to kind of with Soulfire Grove, the goal was to recreate the feeling of my original home studio in another location. And, and the reason I, I wanted to do that was because a lot of the feedback I got from my students, um, the feedback was, we really love your home studio space. It feels comfortable, safe. Um, it's not on a, you know, people aren't walking by and watching what we're doing. Um, people just really liked the vibe there. And I, and I get it. Like it, it, it kind of had like a little hidden secret entrance and, you know, especially our teens, our teens who like didn't want to sit in a storefront window. Um, they just really, really liked the space. So when I, when I started working on Slow Fire Grove, I really needed something that would have a similar vibe. And so for me, that meant not having a big storefront space with large windows. Um, and I think that I think that I've done a pretty good job in in replicating that feeling. Um, so now we're out of my house, which is good. <laughs> yes, for everyone involved, that's awesome. I love yeah. the two different vibes that you have with the two different yeah. spaces. Okay, um, last few questions. So, last thing I want to talk about with Slow Fire is Slow Fire Art Foundation. What is it, and what is it about? So I, I felt like in order to be true to our mission in accepting all kinds of people and supporting all kinds of people, that that also meant that we needed to open our doors to people who couldn't afford our services. So I started the 501c3. Where it's officially a 501c3 last May. Um, so it's been a little over a year. Um, starting a nonprofit has been a very challenging journey, in my opinion. It is not easy to raise money. It's not easy to get grants. Um, and so 
it's been it's been interesting i for a while i just gave out scholarships from you know i i i paid for them basically i paid for the scholarships for for like two years so we had a handful of scholarship students for the first couple of years that I just um, I just supported and paid for that spot myself. So in starting the 501c3, I was hoping to formalize it. And so last year we we raised some money. And so for the first half of 2023, I was able to give out, I believe, 23 scholarship spots, meaning a child, a teen or an adult took a six to seven week class with us. And so, you know, that's a significant amount of scholarships I was able to give out. And then our money kind of ran, ran up, you know, we ran dry, I want to say around April. And so I've been so busy, it's been hard to raise more money. I, I have written a bunch of grants. Um, I'm hoping we'll, we'll have our like gala this November. Um, but the goal of of the 501c3 is to bring in scholarship students who otherwise couldn't afford what we do. Um, even though we don't have funding for the rest of this year, I still have supported and accepted scholarship students that I've just paid for. Mm -hmm. And so for example, right now, um, we have some attending classes and but also we are working with the Oak Park River Forest Township and the Oak Park Public Library. So we offer a free weekly senior class at the township. And that's a painting and drawing class on Wednesday afternoons. And we've been we've we've had a few like multi-part, multi-week offerings with the park district that we have also funded. Um, or to be clear, I, I've funded um, most of those myself um, because I really feel like our mission should also be to give back to the community. I would really love to see our nonprofit take off more and I believe get the support it needs. Um, I'm particularly focused on supporting the senior population with our nonprofit. They're an often overlooked part of our community. Um, so that's where my focus has been on grant writing. And I will continue to offer as best I can the classes until we have more, uh, more robust uh, finances to support it. Um, yeah, so that's a big goal of mine. It's a juggling act for sure. Um, but I have a great board, board um, a group of people who support the mission and believe in it. And um, you know, one thing I learned with a 501c3 is, is it's, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg situation because when you're writing a grant, they want to show evidence of what you're doing, but how do you do what you want to do if you don't have the funding to do it? Um, and then, you know, people are pulled in a lot of directions about like where they give their money. So, mm -hmm. so that's also hard too, because you have to show what you're doing in order to get more support and it has to be something people want to support. So I'm hoping I'm hoping some of our grants work out and I'm hoping to continue to build that actively. That was a mouthful. 
I love it though. It speaks to how passionate you are about the foundation and what you want it to become. Um, and you're right. I think that the senior population is often very much overlooked in all aspects of things. So I think that's beautiful that you're bringing art and things that are therapeutic to them. Um, yeah, I mean, it's really wonderful. Our, our township class is just amazing. And my teachers really enjoy working with seniors and, you know, they have formed relationships and that's a little community that I think is really special. And um, Laura at the township has been very, has been wonderful to work with. And then Rose at the, at the public library has been wonderful to work with. So there are people in the community that are helping make these happen. And that's really great. Amazing. Okay, two last questions before we get to some rapid fire ones. What advice would you give to past Noel on day one of starting this whole journey? Oh my God. That's a really, really tough question. I don't know. Um, I think prepare yourself to not have as much privacy as you used to have. That makes sense. Yeah, I think that has taken me by surprise that that's, that I have to be, that, that more, pe the more people know who I am in the community. Um, you know, there's, there is a loss of privacy there that I, I wasn't expecting. Um, mm -hmm. you know, when you're at the doctor's office and they're like, oh, are you slow fire? You know, that's a little, that's a little uncomfortable, right? Um, I wasn't expecting that. I also, I also would say to myself um, that the right people will come at the right time. Mm -hmm. so at times when I have needed more staff or someone hasn't worked out, you know, I've been surprised. Inevitably, inevitably, inevitably someone appears, you know, like sometimes if I'm patient, the right person shows up. And so I would say to pass Noel, one, prepare yourself to lose a little bit of your privacy in Oak Park. And two, um, be more patient. I love that. Um, and then the last question, where can people find you, not in real life, but on social media, um, because we want to respect your privacy. <laughs> and um, how can they support or find what Slow Fire is offering right now? People can go to my website, slowfireceramics.com. I would like for folks to know that even though our name is Slow Fire Ceramics, that we offer a lot more than that. We offer fibers, we offer painting, drawing, um, we offer aftercare, um, events, parties. Um, I, you know, I'd like, that's, if I, that is the other thing I would change. If I could go back in time, I would just say slowfire.com, not slowfire ceramics. But again, because it started with my ceramics line, I already had that URL. Um, so yes, you can find us at slowfireceramics.com. And then if you want to support our foundation, there's a link on that website to our slowfireartsfoundation.org website. Um, and then I'm on Instagram uh, at slowfireceramics and same with Facebook. I am not really active on, I'm not active on TikTok. Um, 
Great. I will link that all in the show notes. So last five rapid fire questions. What is your favorite beverage right now? This is terrible. Diet Pepsi. (laughs) I'm going to give it up. Mine is Diet Coke. And I swear, I'm like, this is my last one. And then it just never is my last one. It's terrible. It's a terrible addictive habit. I don't drink alcohol. And so that's also how I like justify it to myself. Like, you know, you don't drink. So yeah, the Diet Pepsi is okay. Yeah. Same, same. (laughs) Yep. It's, it's an issue, Mm -hmm. but I, I justify it. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've tried Olipops, but they're, they taste, I would say like 40% of what I want out of a Diet Coke. (laughs) Yeah. I like the root beer flavor, the Olipop root beer flavor. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it is about, about Diet Coke or Diet Pepsi. I don't know. There's something in it that's definitely addictive, right? Oh, absolutely. It's, you can't stop. I can't stop. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I I stopped when I was pregnant. I think that was it. (laughs) Same. That's the only thing. That's the only time I've gone periods of time without drinking Diet Coke. Um, What is your go-to feel-good song right now? Oh, shoot. Uh, Oh my gosh. I don't know. I really do. I like country music, but... um, that's a really, really tough question. I don't know. It really runs the gamut. Um, my kids would say I listen to too much Taylor Swift. Um, There's never too much Taylor Swift. <laughs> <laughs> but I also, you know, like, I, I some of those like classic like country women singers like Faith Hill and Trisha Yearwood and like I, I like some of that old throwback stuff too. Like to me, that's it reminds me of my childhood. Um, so I don't know. That's a tough question. What's the last thing that made you laugh? Oh my God. My husband sends me all these cat memes over Instagram and I love them. I love that. Some of these cat memes are just hilarious. I really am the lady who who like looks at cat memes. I can't believe that, but I am. (laughs) I think that might be my favorite part of this whole interview. (laughs) (laughs) I really would love to have a cat, but my, one of my kids is allergic. So yeah, (laughs) it'll be the memes for now. Yeah. Um, this one should be easy. What's your most used app? Does Gmail count? I think so. Yeah. It's an app. Yeah. I I guess Gmail or text message. Does text messaging count? Yeah. You have to press a button to get there. So I'll say it's an app. Okay. I spend (laughs) way too much time on Gmail. It sucks. Aside from that, Kindle, uh, I do, I, I really enjoy pleasure reading that. That is how I actually relax. If I have time to myself is I'll read. Which leads me to my last question. What's the last book you read? Oh, I, I don't know. I read so much. Um, God, I don't even know the name of the book I'm reading right now. Right now I'm reading mother, daughter, murder night. And it's, it's okay. I'm only a little bit in. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm only at like a chapter or so in, so we'll see how that goes. I think, I think it's actually a Reese Witherspoon book club book, um, which I don't, I don't necessarily follow her, but I realized that when I, when I downloaded it off Kindle. So yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you 
so much, Noelle. It was such a pleasure to chat with you and hear the story. Um, yeah, it was just a pleasure. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. I hope you all enjoyed that conversation that I had with Noelle. I am not particularly gifted in anything that has to do with art or design or painting or anything like that. So it's always really interesting for me to hear the perspective of somebody who is very talented in that arena. The quote I'm leaving you off with today is another Emerson one. And he once said, every artist was first an amateur. And I thought long and hard after this conversation with Noelle about the feeling of anxiety, the feeling of newness, the feeling that you feel before you get in front of an audience. And I, I want you all to know that we're all going to start off not being so great at whatever hobby we choose to do, right? Of course, there's that off chance that you are just naturally fantastic at it. But to become a master at something, you first have to be an amateur at it. And I hope that gives you some desire to try something new. Next week's episode is going to be an interview with Emily the Medium, and I'm very, very excited about that one. So tune in next week. If you're enjoying this podcast, please share it with your friends, follow it along on Spotify or Apple, and leave a review. I really, really appreciate it. Um, Until then, I will see you next week. Have a beautiful, magical week, and always remember to look within. Thank you.